This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit, educate, and inspire new hunters and to entertain the rest of you. Without the mentorship of responsible, conservation-minded hunters, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So please stick around and be sure to check out our Facebook group, Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, and like our main page at Foul Front Outdoors right after this episode. So uh, welcome to the podcast, and we're glad to have you on this first episode, uh, episode number one. We're going to cover the introduction to waterfowl hunting. Uh, I feel like a lot of podcasts have five-minute episodes that say you know who we are, who they are, and what's coming up. Well, we don't really have time for that, uh, beings that well, you, your mom, your son is what, four months old? Yeah, just christening four months yeah. now. My wife's about a year pregnant right now. So, um, Anyways, the, the whole point of this podcast is to help you uh, get from the couch to the blind and uh, hunting some ducks. I, I suppose we'll probably have future episodes of uh, some, some deer hunting. I know. You're a bit more into that these days than I am. Yeah, it's fun to branch out a little bit. Um, I think waterfowl being the main topic, but we can definitely reach into some of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're an experienced waterfowler, it's possible that you could benefit from this podcast. Uh, but if you're like me, you just appreciate listening to people talking about hunting. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't already heard of the HP Outdoor Waterfowl Podcast, um, when you're done with this episode, go over there and check them out, Josh and Dan. They've been doing this for quite a while and are a, bit, a little bit more professional and uh, have a lot of great content and an awesome listener uh, following, and uh, they're doing great things. In fact, I think it was episode 72 or 73, the last one uh, that I listened to, was like the final motivation for us to say, you know, screw it, let's let's actually record. Because when was the first time we talked about doing this podcast? I mean, it's been over a year ago. I think we've been <laughs> toying around with it for a long time. Yeah, I think we've written probably, you know, nine or ten episode formats. And um, just, we never did it until literally it was like last Monday. I was like, we're doing it. Yep. Finally put the foot down. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, we're going to help you get out there and grow. So without any further ado, I, let's get uh, introduced really quickly, and then we can get on to the uh, the stuff you actually want to hear. So Austin, um, this is my good buddy Austin. Why don't you give us a little introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ben, for 
having me on. Um, you know, as far back as I can remember, um, I guess I was about 11 years old uh, when I started hunting, or I wouldn't even know if I was actually hunting. I was probably the bird dog. Um, both my brother <laughs> and I, uh, going out with my dad um, and my grandpa up in uh, South Dakota, Nebraska. Uh, so really before we could uh, carry a gun, you know, we would go out there and uh, kick up the birds in the field. And my first exposure was kind of the upland bird hunting. Um, but when I crested age 11, you know, hit age 12, I kind of officially began hunting with my dad and carrying my own gun. Uh, I can definitely remember um, carrying my first single shot, 20 uh, gauge shotgun. Um, that was really my first exposure uh, to waterfowl hunting. So I didn't have a whole lot of rounds to shoot, um, but when I did, uh, my dad made a point of uh, making all those shots count. Um, and then, you know, as time progressed and I got into my teens in high school, um, got more into deer hunting uh, and then uh, turkey hunting, but there was always something about waterfowl hunting that just kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, so what have you been doing, like the, you know, what kind of hunting have you been into like the last couple of years, I guess? Yeah. So I guess a little bit of background um, to lay it out a little bit easier. Um I'd say between about age uh, 13 and uh, 17, um, when we lived out on the East Coast, um, we kind of hunted the uh, Eastern Flyway. So my brother, my dad, and I did a lot of uh, hunting out in the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River um, out in Virginia. And so that Eastern Flyway for waterfowl um, was really my first exposure uh, to duck hunting. Um, and then once we moved back to the Midwest, um, we definitely hunted that Central Flyway and did a lot more field hunting um, Missouri River hunting, um, and then large ponds in a uh, public area. So I, I have a mix, um, of hunting on private land, uh, but I feel like I, I hunted a lot of public land, uh, especially through high school and college. Um, and that's obviously something we'll talk about later, but there are a lot of benefits and, uh, disadvantages. Um, and it's fun. And there are also some upsets, uh, when you don't, when you don't get into public land, but that's oh, yeah. largely part of my experience is having to compete with other hunters, uh, to get those good duck spots. Um, you know, but a more broad background, I, I'm guessing the secondhand, uh, waterfowler of a self-taught dad, you know, nobody ever taught my dad how to duck hunt. Uh, my dad kind of discovered it on his own. Um, and through my dad discovering it, uh, both my brother and, uh, my grandpa and I, um, really learned how to do it through him. So, you know, we watched my dad, uh, figure out what a good spread was, you know, how to throw the decoys out, um, honestly, which way we needed to be facing in the wind, um, and how to shoot, you know, how to shoot the ducks and, and when they're approaching and, and how to call. And I wouldn't say that I ever became a very good caller, um, but I, I did learn a lot watching my dad uh, teach himself to waterfowl hunt. And that just kind of kept me in the game. And anytime I had a chance to get out, um, that's what I did. So whether it was in college or in high school, uh, public land or private land, um, I always find a way at least to get out uh, once or twice during the season. Yeah, and I, you know, I know I threw I, you threw that comment in there about uh, the, the calling. Uh, so we just moved. We both just uh, recently moved to Kansas, and we are reunited together again after you know um, meeting in college. But um, we went out on a goose hunt. Yeah. And uh, I will say, yeah, I might have you in the duck calling department, but yeah, I think my yeah my duck calling is is lacking. But that's that's definitely what um, you know this episode is about is that is calling doesn't have to be everything, oh. and, and we'll hit. And that wasn't just a, a depreciating no, comment. Yeah. That was also to to add in there before you cut me off that you you got me on the goose calls. I'll say that you definitely have me uh, at calling geese. But yeah, yeah, all right. Um, just, okay, then a little bit about me. My name's Ben, and, uh, <clears throat> I started off, uh, hunting upland with my dad, just pheasant and quail, um, in central Kansas. Actually, one of my first memories is, uh, my dad leaving to go hunting, and then I'd be trying as a toddler to, like, get dressed and follow him out the door. I grew up in Nebraska, and, uh, like I said, went pheasant and quail hunting with my uncles, uh, my dad, um, and my grandpa and, and friends, and we had... German short hairs growing up. Um, didn't 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 do any waterfowl hunting really. In fact, uh, just once or twice here and there when I was I was younger, and then really nothing until uh, I got into college, and then nothing until I actually moved down to El Paso, Texas. But back it up a little bit. Uh, so in high school, I I got it really big into deer hunting, and a lot of that was in college. I, you probably remember in college. I, oh yeah. Missing, uh, missing class to go, uh, yeah. uh, to deer, you know, halfway across the state, maybe not the most responsible thing. 
But like I said, got got introduced. Went I think the first Ducks Unlimited banquet I went to was with you. Yeah, um, at, at Nebraska. Yeah, so. yep, yep. And then um, and then my buddy Tony, who uh, he'll probably be on in um, at least uh, in a couple future episodes. But it wasn't until I moved down to El Paso, Texas, where you know West Texas, it's pay to play to hunt deer, and New Mexico. You, you have to draw a lottery, and I just didn't have a lot of time to go do scouting, so I was sitting down there, and there was, you know, no hunting for me that I, that I could find and until somebody told me, hey, you know there's, like, pretty good duck hunting down here, and I said, really? Like, in the desert, there's there's no water around here, but the first time I went uh, truly, like, duck hunting all by myself was on the Rio Grande, you know, with the Border Patrol driving past me, and you know, the big old fence behind me and then uh, the Rio Grande up front in Mexico across the, the river. So pretty, pretty interesting. But I didn't really have anybody to teach me how to hunt waterfowl. And I learned a lot through HP Outdoors, Waterfowl Podcast, and tons of forums, uh, just hours and hours of reading and, you know, reading magazines and actually getting out there and failing and and I just thought to myself, man, like this is a really hard sport to break into um, unless you're completely ate up with it and really want to get out hunting and you don't have any other options. So it, it, it's it's difficult. And that's that's why, you know, we're trying to help help you, the, the new hunter out um, to break into this to this sport and maybe not have to, you know, run into some of the things that we ran into. Yeah, I mean, if I can just say, Ben, I think that your story, though, has probably really spawned, you know, this 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 episode and, and this entire podcast. Um, you know, I think it's pretty remarkable after college and we kind of separated and went our own ways, just listening to you getting into waterfowl hunting and, and seeing all your pictures. Um, and, and I looked and I was like, wow, Ben had nobody to teach him how to waterfowl hunt. And here I am claiming that you know, I've been doing it since I was in uh, middle school, all through high school, and I think Ben uh, killed more ducks in one season than I probably ever killed over the course of four years. So, it, I, think it was I think a lot of that was location. I think a lot of that was location. But I think it just goes to show that with the right amount of research, um, you know, and, and dedication, uh, you can become a pretty good waterfowl hunter. Okay, well, shall we move into the uh, yeah. meat and potatoes, as it were, uh, of this it. episode? Okay, uh, so before we begin, I think it's important um, to understand the paradigm or the frame that you're going to be operating under, um, which is the North American conservation model, um, which is essentially how we conserve land and natural resources in North America, uh, especially um, the United States and Canada. And the bottom line on that is is that um, the dollar wins every time. Um, and so when you've got large tracts of uh, land that are in the public domain, such as, you know, uh, the Bureau of Land Management or the Department of the Interior who manages um, all that, <clears throat> uh, it's it doesn't make money. Uh, it's sitting there. You're not collecting um, taxes off of it, property tax, uh, things like that. So um, to a lot of people who, you know, aren't conservation-minded or hunters – uh, they they see that as a kind of um, uh, a money pit. Uh, so when I buy um, a tract of land, I have to pay property taxes on it, and the uh, the government and the state, you know, they make money off of that um, through through my property taxes. If you're not doing that, if you're not if there is no private land and it's just public and open to the you know the public domain, right? How do you make money off of it? So. Uh, the way that they came up with that was that they said, okay, well, we're going to let hunters and uh, fishermen utilize these public lands. And the way we make money off that is through hunting licenses, yep. um, fishing licenses, all the different you know stamps that you have to get endorsed for. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to keeping land open and public for us to use for uh, hunting and then for more importantly for the you know flora and fauna the stuff that we hunt and trees and all that nature um to be preserved and not turned into a city or a factory site yeah exactly 
you you have to you have to keep up with the money on that. Yeah, and I I think you know something to pull out of this, and like you brought up before, is this the Pittman Robertson Act of, of 1937, um, you know, which took over a pre-existing uh, tax on firearms and ammunition, um, and really what that did was it altered where the money was going instead of going to the U.S. Treasury, you know, like it had done in the past. Um, it's kept money separate. Um, and giving it to the Secretary of the Interior uh, to distribute to the states. And that's a large bullet point um, out of this North American conservation model. Right. And so let's just take a practical example. For me to hunt a turkey in uh, New Mexico, right? Yep. I have to, one, have public land because I don't own private land. So in order for that to be uh, available to go hunt on it and pull turkeys off of it, I have to buy a hunting license, right? So let's say the, the hunting license cost me uh, $50. Um, even more if I live out of state. Let's say it cost me $100. Yeah, they get expensive. For yep. the it. So, yeah. So the, the other thing that I have to do is I have to have uh, not only the New Mexico hunting license, but now they make me buy a turkey tag. Yeah. Uh, which is specifically, it might, may or may not be geared towards it, but it's another way to generate uh, money. So let's call that 20 bucks. So now I'm $120 in. Right. But I also need, you know, I need to buy binoculars. I need to buy, you right. know, you've got to start getting the gear that goes with it. And yeah. the dollar bills are going to soon start to add up. <laughs> yes. And so meanwhile, uh, all that license and tag money is going to the Department of the Interior, who will then use it to keep the land open and do conservation work on it, such as land management and uh, things like that. And, you know, Paying the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services yep. and all that stuff that keeps <laughs> turkeys and hunting abound. Um, and then, you know, while steadily holding off anybody that wants to buy it um, or your legislation that wants to sell it all. Uh, so that's how conservation uh, makes money and is able to be justified in a, a money-driven world and compete uh, against, you know, the the privately owned uh, sector, as it were. And I'm not saying anybody that goes out and <laughs> buys public land when it comes up for, for auction is a, you know, uh, a bad person. But th- that's just a, a basic understanding um, so that you understand where your money is going towards when you buy uh, these, you know, stamps um, and these licenses and things like that. So, yeah. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, you definitely have the ins and outs, you know, of the specifics. Um, and I, I guess on a more basic level, just always like to think, even if I don't kill anything that season, um, my money has gone to a good cause. And that's keeping those lands open um, and, and keeping, you know, the tradition of conservation available for our generation and the next generations. Yes. At least that's what I tell my wife when I'm spending all my money <laughs> and not coming back with anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I'm like six years in a row now that I have not shot a turkey. Yeah. So, uh, but back to waterfowl. Okay. So now that you kind of understand where uh, those hunting license fees that you just looked up on the internet, wow, that's pretty expensive, uh, where it goes to. It's all, it's all for a good cause, but shall we get into the uh, the basics? Yeah, let's do it. I'll, um, I'll kind of hit the first bullet here. If if you don't mind, I think I can fully grasp the background on needing to understand, you know, first and foremost, the rules and the regulations um, of your state. Like we were talking about with the uh, different stamps, the federal stamps and the state stamps, um, there's a series of regulations, especially for waterfowl hunting, um, that, that you have to understand. Um, and if you're going to do anything, to do your homework. Um, and you have all spring and all summer. Uh, to knock that homework out before the fall comes around and you get into those early uh, teal seasons and ultimately the entire uh, duck season. Or maybe you have a hunt coming up this weekend. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And you have to research it because you just got to the state. Um, but that I would I would break it down in into kind of two things. Um, where you're hunting and what you're hunting. Uh, at least that's the basic way that I break it down for myself. Um, every single state has different regulations. Uh, if you get online and and pull up your Kansas State Outdoors, Missouri State Outdoors, or, you know, Tennessee Department of Conservation, you can find exactly what those state regulations are and then what you're hunting. Every state allows you to hunt something a little bit different and bag a few more, you know, of a certain species than another state might. And that is all dependent on that conservation model and the flyaway um, for for where you're hunting at. Yeah, and then there's also um, umbrella federal regulations, too, especially for waterfowl hunting because... 
you know, I mean, you'd have to have something to operate under as when you're building your legislation um, for for that. Um, but we will uh, future in the next two or three uh, episodes, we are going to cover fully everything that you need to know uh, when it comes to the rules and the regulations, uh, such as like every every year I take out two or three new hunters. And, uh, they they're always floored by, wow, that's. Wait, you can't do this? Why can't you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's not just loading your shotgun and um, getting on a boat or getting on a bank and, and shooting at the first thing that flies by. Uh, quite honestly, it's it's more difficult than that, but it's not a difficult task to be an expert at, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, like just just for instance, this sounds crazy, and you might not have anything to, might not know this, but a lot of uh, seasoned waterfowlers don't even know this, but you can't, if me and Austin are in the blind and we're shooting and uh, a couple birds go down, and a uh, dog goes and grabs them, and we just throw them at our feet. Next thing you know, we've got, you know, eight ducks between us, and uh, they're both just sitting there. Game warden comes up, and we get a ticket because we did not segregate those birds and identify whose limit which bird went to. Um, there's no group hunting. Um, it's I have my limit. Austin has his limit, and they need to be separate and segregated or, or tagged. Um but it's little things like that that can really hem up a, uh, a first-time waterfowler, which is why you you definitely need to do the research, and then you definitely need to uh, listen to our upcoming podcast where we're going to really read through a lot of the, um, the laws and regulations and find the stuff that's going to trip you up. And some of the literature yeah, uh, can also definitely be confusing. No, it is. I find myself, after multiple seasons of, of waterfowl hunting, Reading and rereading and rereading, you know, what this state or what that state. Um, oh, yeah, especially last year. Yeah. How many states have you lived in since 2013? Yeah, you know? I mean, four different ones. Between yeah. hunting in Missouri, Tennessee, Georgia, Kansas, and Washington. Like, Washington's a great example. You know, about everything you can do in the Midwest, out in the state of Washington on the West Coast, uh, you cannot do out there. Um, <laughs> you know, there's right. there's more details to get in on that, but it's just, it's opening up those pamphlets and, and reading what's specific to your state. But there's some basics, though, before even looking at, like, specific to state that, you know, federally, you always have to abide by. And that kind of rolls into, you know, when you're using your shotgun, what kind of shot are we going to use and what's legal to use? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's a good segue into um, what what you need. Well, we'll start going down the, the equipment list, some of the stuff that you can start saving up for and buying that you uh, that you really do need to have before we get out there this fall. Yeah. So let's start off with shotguns. Yep. I think um, the debate recently between Ben and I has been, um, you know, your your pump shotgun that your dad gave you when you were 13 years old, like <laughs> my Remington uh, 870 Express, or your new, you know, Benelli uh, Supernova semi-automatic three and a half inch shotgun, which you got when you were 25 years old. And Wondered why you were using a pump your entire 10 years before that. So I fall into the camp of, uh, I, I like the pump shotgun, and uh, I like to think I can I can squeeze off three rounds uh, uh, accurately, uh, just as, not just as quick, but uh, the key part was with that accurate, uh, as fast as uh, most people can do it with their semi-auto. Because uh, when you use a pump, you shoot, you pump, it forces you to re-aim. Yeah. And I think uh, as, as a new waterfowler, especially for the price point, uh, the pump shotgun is probably where you, you need to lean. You can get yourself a, a good, you know, working man's blue collared Remington 870 for what? I mean, 400 bucks? Yeah, under under 600 for sure. And I'm yeah. definitely, I kind of going back to what Ben was saying, I, I started out hunting on a pump shotgun, and I still do. I have the same Remington 870 Express that only shoots two and three quarter or three inch shells. And that... That is my go-to, you know, backup lucky duck shotgun. I mean, I've never had any issues with that, and I'm definitely an advocate for for pump shotguns. And I hope to pass that pump shotgun down to my son one day. It's nice to shoot with the semi-automatic, though, that you don't have to pump in. Yeah. Um, however, I think the I think the point of this is that you don't you don't have to have that nice three and a half inch, you know, camo dipped um, Benelli semi-automatic shotgun you can get the job done uh with the pump and you know quite honestly it's it's a little more fun sometimes and it makes the game a little more challenging because you do have to 
pump and reload manually and, you know, get back on your beat and, and back on the bill of that duck. Yeah, another um, thing, too, as well, especially for not only new waterfowlers, but or new people that are newly around weapons. Yeah, um, that's know, a good point. Kids and uh, maybe, maybe you don't have a lot of experience with firearms. And so it, it's a heck of a lot safer to when you when you shoot your pump shotgun, you know there's a physical action requiring um, you to pump that shotgun before it can shoot again. Yep. Which can, you know, provide a lot of peace of mind and actually limit the, you know, exposure to incidences that you might have out, out there. And, you know, that's another segue into safety, which uh, we have an entire episode yeah. dedicated to safety procedures. Um, not only shooting your shotgun, but when you're out in the field. Uh, so that's something to look forward to as well. Uh, but back to the old, uh, the pump slash semi-auto, uh, I would say that, you know, I always laugh whenever we pull up and, uh, you know, we got birds in front of us and I just hear click, click, <laughs> like when, uh, when I'm like, take them from my two buddies with semis and I'm just, you know, hammering it. So, uh, the thing is, is, uh, semi-automatics, uh, do take a little bit more, um, maintenance, maintenance. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing is, is the, 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 the ease and comfort, um, payoff levels for semi-automatics is awesome. It's great. Uh, but the maintenance and um, attention to detail um, and price point, you know, you're getting what you pay for there. So, yeah. yeah you, you really are getting what you pay for um, in a semi-auto. But like Austin said, if you're just starting off, I, I, I recommend the pump. Yep. The old Remington 870. I know? mean, it helps you get out the door for less than 500 bucks. Um, yeah. You know, and whatever you can shoot with the pump shotgun, especially if it's only shooting two and three quarter, three inch, it'll make you a better shot, in my opinion, when you've got that three inch or you start up on the size of your, your shells. As always, this episode is brought to you in part by High Prairie Sportsman, a group of conservation-minded outdoorsmen and women who have a lot of great content over on YouTube. Just go search for High Prairie Sportsman over there and you'll be entertained for hours and you might even learn something. They're very close friends of the show. And without them, uh, a lot of this stuff wouldn't be possible. Okay, back to the show. Right, so uh, good transition into what kind of ammo we need to use. Yeah. Um, so generally, I, I've only found two and three quarters, three inch, and three and a half inch shells. And so that's just the length, literally the length of the shell. And you need to check your shotgun uh, specifications. A lot of times they're printed right there on the barrel. It'll tell you what, you know, the max amount of, you know, length on that shell you can have. But past that, there's, so once you, once you have that figured out, um, there's different shot sizes. It ranges from what, what's the biggest one? You got your double B, um, yeah. and then it goes, you know, uh, twos, threes, fours. The way I uh, equate it is this. So a number eight field game load is like having a bucket. The bucket's the shotgun shell. A bucket full of sand. Um, and a, you know, having number twos is like having a bucket full of, uh, baseballs. Okay. Same five gallon bucket, but the twos have baseballs in them. And then the eight has sand in it. You, you shoot number eights and stuff for fast moving targets and number sixes and stuff like that. Cause it has more, more pellets and more BBs that it throws out there. Um, not to say during September teal season, yeah, um, you can get I, it done with those higher higher shots for I, sure. I had a lot of success this year because of the, just the hole that we were sitting in. Yeah. Um, the, the birds were finishing really close, so I was shooting sixes yeah. um, at them, and, and they were going down just fine. I was shooting them at like 15, 20 yards. Yeah. I think that, I mean, this isn't like always the case, you know, because I think uh, a BB in the head of any waterfowl is, is going to knock it down and the wings are going to stop flapping. But, you know, the, on the very basic level, I guess kind of what my dad told me before I really could understand what, what shot size really was, it's, you know, it's like the bigger the bird, the the lower in that number on the shot. So, you know, generally I'd say when we're out duck hunting, you know, and you're hunting big ducks, you know, net twos are, are the way to go. And if, and if we're going to go to geese, um, you know, then, then we're moving it down to, to BBs. Um, and then like Ben was saying for teal, I mean, you can, you can knock teal down all the way, with six shot, um, and then beyond that, seven and eight, you know, that you're out, you're out shooting clay pigeons and, and trap. And, and that's uh, just kind of a, an easy scale to, to think about it. Yeah. One thing that I picked up, so I, I used to, when I, when I was first starting off, I'd say, okay, I'm going to buy these boxes for teal season. Yeah. Ah, you know, um, two, uh, you know, fours and whatnot, um, fours and sixes for teal season. 
Um, and then as the season progresses, birds start getting a little bit more thick, and the big birds start moving down from uh, the north. Uh, I start transitioning over into twos, uh, threes when I can find them. And, yeah. And then eventually late season geese talking, you know, BB. But uh, one thing that I picked up from Josh and Dan over at the HP Waterfowl Podcast, just going number twos. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. You I can listen to that episode also. It's, yeah. There's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> so, you know, you can shoot teals with number two if you're a good shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just add a little bit more of a distance so you're not destroying them. But, uh, yeah, you can shoot twos all season. Yeah. At, at really bird. It's a really versatile load. I, I do prefer threes when you can find them for the same price, but a lot of times they're about twice as expensive. Yeah, I mean, and that's just that's something to remember when you're buying all of all of your gear and you're deciding how high end you're going to go. Um, don't forget that you know I guess unless you uh, reload ammunition, but don't forget that the shells are not recyclable per se. Um, you're going to have to go out and buy more, yeah. um, and that's for most people that don't reload anything. So it's going to you're going to keep spending the money there, so look for those values and become a better shot and maximize the dollar that you spent on all the ammo. Yeah. I think one thing, though, in the most basic concept of, of shells, which I, you know, we'll talk about in, in regulations, though, is it's just worth bringing up. You know, remember for waterfowl hunting, you're out there with steel shot um, and not, not lead shot. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just ties into that conservation model. You know, what, what are we conserving and... Um, and what are we trying to protect? And just make sure you're using steel and uh, not lead because that'll have you up pretty quick. Yeah, you know, because we're shooting a lot of times over water, and there was there was some studies. Um, I can't remember what – I don't know what the date was that they started. I think it was back in the 70s or 80s or something like that when yeah, they said, probably. hey, you got to start using steel because uh, in theory it makes a lot of sense that you shouldn't be shooting a bunch of lead yeah. Um, into the water. And then more than that is, is these oh. ducks, they, they feed on the bottoms of these, uh, oh, yeah. these waterfowl, these, uh, water sources and, and they're picking up BBs and, and their gizzards and, yeah. you know. I mean, in essence too, it's, it's what you're eating though too. If you're going to eat that duck, it's, it's probably not good to be ingesting that <laughs> BBs. Cause if you're like me, sometimes the BBs end up in the breast and not the head and you find yourself munching on a few <laughs> after you've cooked them. Um, which the third component here I think that's important to talk when you're talking about shotguns um, and then ammunition the kind of middle the thing that brings those two together is the chokes yeah so a choke if you're not familiar with it it's um, it's what constricts your BBs coming out of your the end of your shotgun to give you a certain pattern some chokes make it so that it sprays like way more. And then some chokes, you know, they try to keep it as tight, so you have the tightest grouping um, um, at the furthest distance possible. And one thing to consider um, always is uh, when you're shooting steel um, or tungsten, uh, they pattern tighter um, because they, they're not as malleable. So when you're shooting lead shot out of your full choke, that's a full choke. Yeah. But when you are shooting um, steel uh, through that same full choke, uh, it is getting really tight, and it's actually not uh, advisable. Um, yeah, to I mean, shoot. a lot of those chokes, too, for the guys just getting into it, so you don't make this mistake. They'll say lead only on them yeah. for those those full chokes. Yeah. So you, you don't want to be shooting bottom line up front. Yeah. Don't shoot steel out of a full choke um, unless manufacturer's requirements actually say that, yes, this is actually a legit uh, steel full choke, which is... I don't think that common unless you're getting really into aftermarket chokes. Good thing to go for is I, I would stick with your mod or your mod plus. That's your modified choke. Um, that's a essentially a full choke for steel. Yep. You can even uh, get it back down to the, the improved cylinder, which is just a little bit more open, um, especially for teal season. But I tell you, I shoot number two uh, federal premium three-inch shells through a mod uh, mod plus choke. All year. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. And I think uh, Ben's model is a little more conservative than mine because I am find myself spending a little more dollars and buying what the newest and hottest uh, ammunition is out there to help me knock down those birds. But the basics are exactly what Ben says, and I couldn't agree more. Yep. So how, how are we going to get there, though? We've got our regulations um, understood. We know what we're going to shoot. 
Um, but we've got our way down the water somehow. So. Oh, yeah. Another fun and interesting debate. So if you're not hunting a field that's completely dry, uh, which is probably unlikely for a beginning waterfowler, you are going to be hunting over water, uh, whether that's a river, a pond, whatever. I mean, a flooded field. Or too. a flooded field. Yeah. Waders. Yep. So waders come in a lot of different shapes and fashions. Um, we're going to talk about hip waders, and we're going to talk about overall waders. So hip waders, those are just big. They're essentially pants. Um, I, I don't own a pair. No, I mean, neither do I. The last person I honestly seen wear a pair, especially to try to duck hunt, was, was my grandpa. Um, <laughs> you know, that was before waders have evolved into what they are for waterfowl hunting. Those are probably more suited for very... Um, shallow areas in field hunting, but if you're going to be hunting in a, you know, a river or, um, the edge of a lake or on a pond, uh, you're going to need some, um, some overall waders. Yeah. Um, and those come in essentially, I guess, two different types of fashion, which is, uh, breathable and neoprene. So neoprene is a little bit more of the classic, um, thicker material that you would, you've probably seen before. Um, and it's, it's generally what has been used for, you know, uh, the last 40, 50 years, maybe. Um, but, uh, this day and age, they're coming out with a new thing called breathable waders, which are much, uh, thinner. Yeah. You're a fan of those. Yeah. I, I, when I first started, I, I've never owned a pair of neoprene waders because when I went out, I was looking for the cheapest thing I could find. And I found this set of herders, Cabela's. Breathable waders that were two boot sizes too big and 50 bucks, but they were on sale. Anyways, um, and I lived in El Paso, Texas yeah. and I was, I was hunting during, and when I was hunting, it was literally 94 degrees. I think the first time I went, uh, duck hunting. And so the, the guy at the store recommended these and, um, I, I didn't really know anything different, <laughs> but, uh, you can hunt all season in these breathable waders. All you have to do, and the trick is, people will tell you, like, oh, man, you're going to get so cold in late January wearing those uh, those breathable waders. Yeah, not if I layer up underneath of them. Yeah, as long as water <laughs> stays out, you're good. Yeah. I mean, and then on the contrary, you, you have neoprene chest waders, um, you know, which which I've always just grown up with. Um, that's just kind of what my dad and brother and I went out to go buy. You can go to Cabela's, like Ben was saying, especially there's breathable ones. Um, you know, for 50 bucks on sale and for a good pair of neoprene waders by Cabela's, uh, or, or another brand like Redhead from Bass Pro, you can find yourself a decent pair, you know, of like Neo stretch neoprene chest waders for 150 bucks or less. Um, which I personally don't think is, is breaking the bank. I, I think you're making an investment in keeping yourself dry and keeping yourself warm. I don't think that there's really a disadvantage to either, either of the waders. Um, that's just kind of what each one offers. The neoprene ones, um, if you're, you know, if you're talking early season in the late season, uh, three millimeter is, is really a good, um, measurement. And we're talking about the thickness of the neoprene. Um, and that's really what I have always hunted with. And I've just found that I don't wear anything but a pair of like long johns in the early season. Honestly, I've worn a pair of shorts underneath my waders in the early season. And then, in the late season, like Ben said, I just layer up underneath, um, and I've got those sort of skin-tight neoprene waders that, that keep me warm. Yeah. Uh, and I think what we're both saying is, is even though you, you haven't switched over to the to the, to the light side, yeah. the breathable side, um, you, you're not buying 12-millimeter thick, no, no. you know, Arctic uh, waders. It's not necessary – um, you can layer up underneath, and then there's a lot of problems that can be had with that, uh, with yep. freezing. And then if you want to hunt two days in a row, good luck drying your your waders out from yep. your sweat. And then the breathables are just super easy to repair. You, you get a leak in those, you literally throw a patch on either side of it. It's good to go. The 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 neoprenes got to get some some gel like glue and yeah, uh, you do especially if you hold some. Um, yeah, and I've found myself patching up a lot of neoprene waders. Um, I I would just say for waders though. I think they're a necessity, even if you're hunting out of a boat. Um, look at the 
species that you're hunting, you know, water is the first half of the word waterfowl. And you're, <laughs> especially if you don't have a dog or you are the dog, like I was as a young um, hunter with my dad, you will find yourself walking in water. Um, ducks will often land where you think they might not land, uh, especially depending on how good of a shot you are. And if you've got to go wade through some water and you decided to go out because you're in a boat and you're hunting on the shore and you didn't need waders, I, I think you'll find yourself in a tough spot. So I would always have a pair of waders and invest in a decently good pair for a hundred bucks or less and, and you'll be set. Um, waders are probably the most frustrating piece of gear yeah. um, in waterfowl. Uh, and every year they make new advancements to it and they get more technologically advanced and, and better every year, but you really got to take care of them. Don't just crumple those things up and throw them, yeah. throw them in the garage when you're done. Um, despite my attention uh, and care towards my, my waiters, this is, you know, season five and I'm on my third pair of waiters. Yeah. I mean, I... Since age 13, I think this is probably my fifth or sixth pair of waders. So yeah. you will burn through waders. But, I mean, I don't know. In my opinion, that's not a bad thing. You know, it's because they're getting used. Um, sometimes we'd uh, pump it a little bit further than yeah. other places to get to a good spot to duck hunt. Uh, sometimes it's icy, and you're using your knees and thighs to break the ice, and you get cut up a little bit. But your butt. Yeah. <laughs> Waiters are a good investment, and even if you ruin a pair in one season, um, you just you really can't have a good season without a good pair of waiters. Yeah. Well, um, I think we beat the waiter horse. Yeah, yeah. With a stick, just have waiters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't go um, out without them. Yeah. Okay. Um, decoys. Yeah, decoys. I think decoys. Man, we could. Probably talk two or three episodes on this. Um, I agree. Ben has always got uh, very new, um, innovative research to to talk to me about with decoys. Um, I'll just you know throw in a small tidbit. I think that like calling for me, uh, less is more sometimes with decoys. You don't have to be the guy out there with what four or five dozen. You know, decoys. I, I think everybody, yeah. I, I would say, you know, it's a bell curve. Um, yeah. So on one hand, you have the guy that's got four, five decoys out there. And then on the other hand, on the other side, you've got the guys with 14 dozen decoys yeah. uh, out. And then everybody in between, they have uh, two to four decoys, a uh, dozen decoys that they set out, you know. And so whatever you're doing to be, you know, different, I mean, we're going to get into decoy strategies. Um over the course of several episodes, like Austin said. And we'll probably touch on it every episode, perhaps with a, a recurring segment or yeah. something. But um, you're just starting out, and you know you need decoys. What uh, what would you recommend, Austin? I mean, honestly, I, I would recommend Craigslist, and I would recommend a friend. Um, what is that, Facebook uh, Marketplace? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are selling them on there, too. My dad, is he sends me a... Yeah. Two or three texts every week. Yep, I think, and he just buys them and says, "Hey, I got these for you. Yeah. You owe me X amount of dollars now." Yeah, because I think you'll find that people, as quick as they get into hunting, they get out of hunting. Um, and and I've had a dozen of my decoys that I've I've literally had for four or five years. And so the point of that is that a guy probably went to Cabela's on a Black Friday sale and bought himself a nice dozen Mallard decoys. Hunted one season with them, and, and now he's put them up on Craigslist, and that's a great find. So you don't have to go buy the most expensive, you know, dozen decoys uh, out there at Cabela's and Bass Pro. Look on Craigslist, look to see what's used, and if you're new and getting into it, I would throw those out there first. Because if you've got the right motion and you've got the right look for the ducks, um, you may find that they're not going to always care about them being the newest, hottest decoys off the shelf. <laughs> Absolutely. Um and I think that quantity is a quality all yeah. of its own um, when applied correctly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, a good point. So my first uh, two dozen decoys, um, my dad, you know, he, he heard that I was getting into waterfowl and then they were coming down for Christmas. And, and he um, – so he brought down he, – he's an auctioneer by heart. And he found this – they're probably from the 60s. <laughs> oh, yeah, some of those decoys. 60s or 70s. Um, they still float. They had about – uh, 
four or five specks of paint still left on them. Um, and I, at that point, didn't know that, uh, this is embarrassing. This is super embarrassing. I didn't know that, uh, coots weren't ducks. Oh, yeah. And so I, when I was out there looking for ducks, I saw all these white-billed ducks, you know? And I said, hey, I'm going to just paint these decoys like those ducks, you know? And, uh, turned out to be a really good idea. Because people don't carry a lot of coot decoys. So I think I ended up, I had 24, you know, I just spray painted them black and then painted the beaks white. And that probably led to a lot of success Yeah, um, for me in my first season, um, not knowing what I was doing until about halfway through. And then I started like trying to repaint them. And then I saw that people actually used coot decoys as confidence decoys. Yeah, I was going to say you had your own little flock of confidence for ducks. To come into <laughs> yeah. So that... That's embarrassing. Anyways, um, no, I mean, you know, as you're talking about that, I just was getting on Craigslist, and if you're in an area, you know, where waterfowl hunting is prevalent, you know, in the Midwest or in a pretty popular flyway, I mean, I'm I'm looking in like Kansas City, Missouri, around Topeka, Kansas, and there's there's literally tens of twenties of postings of of decoys. Um, decoys are not hard to find, and they're they don't have to be expensive, um, so. Get on your local uh, Facebook market or, yeah. or Craigslist, and you can get yourself started with one or two dozen um, and go at it that season with those uh, before you start um, shelling out the big bucks to buy the newest Avery decoys. Or Duck Commander makes great decoys, too. I like their foam-filled decoys, but they are <laughs> expensive. <laughs> yeah, because when you have buddies that like to shoot into your decoys, yeah. it's nice when they don't sink when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little side disclaimer here. So... A lot of people, they're going to throw, they're going to go out, they're going to buy their their hot buy flambo um, mallards, yeah, and they're going to throw two dozen out because that's about oh hey there's you know forty bucks worth of decoys that's about the right price range and you're going to look like everybody else. Um, that's if, true, yeah. If you're one of those lucky guys, not lucky, hardworking guys, that's um, you know you've got some uh, you you can throw some money into a brand new expensive hobby. I would advise you to. Don't don't waste your time with duck decoys. Um, start building up your goose spread if you know you're gonna want to hunt geese at some point. Yeah, definitely. Because um, I think the best duck spread is a goose spread. Yeah, um, and it's more versatile in that you get to hunt six seven months out of the year that way. Just just a, a little side note, uh, and and two, if if you have a choice and you know you're gonna, if you have a choice where hey, do I buy you know two dozen um, duck decoys or do I buy six um, goose decoys, which one is going to help me out more? I think there's a lot to be said about uh, going straight into getting goose decoys. Yeah, I mean, we saw that in February. We were out on a late season goose hunt on the Kansas River, and I honestly think we could have had a one-man limit of ducks if ducks would have been in season. In about 10 minutes. (laughs) And we weren't even called. I mean, Ben called a little bit, but we were not calling for ducks because it wasn't duck season. But, you know, it was just miraculous to see the amount of ducks confidence that was boosted with our goose decoys that just landed right out in our goose decoys. Well, we so, did have 120 goose decoys yeah, on, us, on a 40-yard sample. The ducks liked it, but the geese didn't particularly pay into it that day. Yeah, they weren't playing. Um, that being said about the goose decoys, I do love having my big three or four trash cans full of, of my duck decoys and repainting them every year and... I'm actually, uh, in this off-season, I'm going to get into flocking. Yeah. Uh, well, let's not go down that road, actually. Yep. Uh, we'll, we'll talk all about decoys and strategy. But for now, um, I would say if you have reservations about going out and spending you know, $120 to get two or three dozen um, brand-new duck decoys, hit the Facebook market, hit Craigslist, and touch them up with some paint, some spray paint. That's all you need. Um and get out there and hunt. Yeah, agree. I think, um, man, I'll I'll let you cover the small bit on on calling because your calling is is way better than mine. To go into our next segue here, if you're listening to this when it just came out, um, this podcast. What's the date today? Today is March 10th. March 10th. Uh, if you're listening to this <laughs> anytime in the next couple months here, um, you can you can go out. You can get yourself a call. 
but if duck season opens up in a week for you, I I have some reservations about you uh, going out there by yourself and just calling. You know, a lot of people would tell you that given okay, which one are you going to leave at home? Your your motion um, your motion decoys, which we didn't even touch on that during decoys. No, that's um, a whole topic. On that's all. Uh, if, if you're going to have motion in your spread um, versus duck calling, they're they're going to choose motion in their spread um, every single time. I do uh, fancy myself a decent caller, and I think it does make the difference, uh, especially on public land. Yeah. Um, just if you're doing something that's realistic and different from every other dude that's out there just tooting on his kazoo. That would be me. Yeah. <laughs> um, blowing as hard as he can and as long as he can on his duck call. Um, but uh, you, we have a whole segment, and uh, I, I want to get a duck call maker um, on the phone with us you know, for an interview, too, uh, for one of these um, uh, episodes in the future. But uh, you, you essentially have single reeds and double reed duck calls, um, and they're made out of a variety of materials. You've got wood. You've got... Um, Polycarbon? Poly yeah. Is that, yeah. Yep. Um, and then acrylic. And they all have their their, their variances. If you really want to buy a, a duck call, go out there, get yourself a double reed wood call, and just work on being able to produce a single quack. And then branch out while you're hunting. Hello, Winnie. Uh, we've been joined by... Um, <laughs> the duck dog herself. The duck dog herself. Um my, my white lab, um, or my golden lab, I should say. Um, but anyways, like I said, uh, I recommend you getting a, a wood double reed to start off because they're pretty easy to blow. They sound very soft and earthy, and they're, you're not going to blow ducks out of the hole with a, a mist quack. You know what I mean? Like, that sounds like a kazoo. Um, and they're, they're, they're also um, something to be said about the one that I have on my lanyard that I first started off with was um the duck commander classic commander oh yeah now my golden retriever is in here with us as well i think uh mom upstairs is getting tired of the uh the dogs she messing around the herd down here yeah she sent the herd down but yeah the duck commander classic yeah i mean it's and it's an easy call to afford too i mean you can Go on Duck Commander's website or just Google the classic Duck Commander uh, double read would call, and it's like thirty dollars. Um, you know that is a very basic call to start with, um, and it's clearly uh, made a few people a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and so it must be a decent call. And there, for as many people that waterfowl hunt, there are that many opinions on duck calls and what you should buy and what. A, I'm just saying, as a beginner. Go to Walmart, go to uh, Cabela's, go just pick out a, a, a cheap one just so you can just start getting the hang of things. Yeah. Unless, of course, you know, you really are diving into this, then do some research. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I think my only piece of advice is because I, I don't fancy myself the greatest duck caller, but if you just go out on your first couple of hunts um, and, and actually listen to what the ducks sound like, that's probably one of the most realistic uh, lessons you can get. Yeah. Um, you know, you may not sound perfect, but listen to what the ducks are actually doing, you know, and the noises they make and, and when those and when those calls for them change based on, you know, their attitudes. And I think you'll learn, you'll learn how to kind of self-teach yourself for calling. Yeah, and there's a whole vocabulary that uh, yeah. that goes with duck calling, you know. Like, for instance, you know, the hail call, the oh, yeah. that thing. Um have you ever heard a real duck do that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have. I have. I mean, it's, it's out I have <laughs> But, um, but yeah. So that, that kind of goes into calls. Um, your decoys and your concealment um, and all that is much more important than calling your first couple hunts out. Uh, maybe your, your whole first season. Um, yeah. Realistic movement, um, I think is going to, I don't know, maybe a, a champion caller would disagree, but. On the basic level, the realistic movement, uh, whether it's wind in your decoys or using a dirt cord, which we can go into in another session, is honestly gonna um, is really gonna overpower uh, bad calling. So if you can't call, just have motion in your decoys. Yeah, 
And if you have none of those other things and you just know where ducks are, be where the ducks want to be, um, and be hidden. So this is, we're going to, we're kind of wrapping up here. Um, but the last thing we want to touch on as far as equipment wise that you need to start gearing up to, to buy or to make, um, is your blinds yeah, or your hides, you know, um, there's a lot of options out there, um, for certain. When you think of duck hunting, you think of, um, you know, a pre-built blind and you're sitting down in there with your buddies and you're drinking coffee. Um, that's, that's not as common for the, uh, the non-property owner, um, that doesn't really have access to be able to build one in the off season. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, especially in public land, you sometimes find yourself on public land. Uh, let's say an example, hunting a spot that you drew into and, you know, in a flooded cornfield, um, and that spot may be really awesome, but you find yourself out in the middle of a couple, uh, rows of corn, you know, to shoot where the ducks are landing, but the ducks can see right over top of those rows of corn and right into you. So you've got to get pretty innovative, um, with making some makeshift blinds or, you know, like Ben's very experienced with hunting on the shore and, and a layout blind. Um, and you've got to really touch up those layout blinds to, to make it realistic. Yeah. So a layout blinder, a coffin blind is, uh, primarily what I hunt out of. Yeah. Um, you literally, you're laying on your back and, uh, you've got like a little, you know, seat thing and you've got something that covers you and doors that pop open that you can shoot out of. Um, you got to camouflage. When you think you're done camouflaging and, and brushing your blind in, uh, go ahead and spend another 15 minutes <laughs> getting yourself hidden. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of ironic. Those blinds, they look pretty, you know, when you're shopping on Cabela's Bass Pro and the, like, real tree Max 4 pattern or whatever the, you know, mossy oak pattern is on them. But when you set them down, you know, in an actual marsh or riverbank or against real, you know, grass and cattails, uh, they stand out. And they they look like, I don't know, they, they look like a painting yeah. sitting out there. And it's just not natural. So you've got yeah. to make it as natural as possible to really convince the ducks. Yeah. And the, the other options, too. So I didn't own a layout blind for my first two seasons. Um, I made a duck blind out of PVC yeah. and then I covered it with some camo netting and then I just spent an hour every morning brushing it in. Um, but there's plenty of different options. Um, and back then I didn't even know what an A-frame was. So I just had it like a typical, you know, old, uh, and I sat on a cooler inside of it, uh, but it works. There's, works. there's options out there. Uh, the internet is a beautiful resource. Um, and we can, we can definitely cover some DIY projects and like things that, um, I like to throw time and hard work into projects where Austin likes to just throw money at it. Um, but, uh, sometimes it pays, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the benefits are, are both, yeah. but well, should we, uh, start concluding things up and kind of giving them a preview of some of the, yeah. we've talked to some of the upcoming topics that we're going to be having. Uh, but we just wanted to kind of let you know what the way forward was here with some of our uh, future podcast episodes. Yeah, I mean, to stay, you know, tuned into what we're talking about, we'll, in the future, we'll get more into how to find uh, land to hunt on. Um, you know, we'll talk more specifically the federal regulations and licensing. Um, we'll start talking about different methods, uh, techniques, you know, tactics, if you will, and procedures for how to scout um, and hunting and, and then common decoy strategies. Yeah. I think the the biggest one like that you can look forward to is the finding land to hunt on yeah, and the scouting. Um, we've got, uh, I mean, like probably three episodes worth of that that we're trying to condense into one. So, um, and then, yeah, duck calling, calling techniques. And then another one that um, I'm super looking forward to is like duck behavior yeah. and the external factors of the environment. Um that affect duck behavior, um, as well as covering the migration, um, and then getting into some of the different species of waterfowl. Um, yeah. Identifying birds, which we talked about way in the beginning of this episode, but that's definitely something we'll get into detail on and how you can become an expert bird identifier. Yeah. And I've got a really easy, um, 
plan um, that, that will help you uh, be able to get out there and shoot ducks uh, without breaking the law um, yeah. and then working on your uh, bird identification. Um, so I say uh, if you have any um, questions or like specific topics that you're looking for, go ahead and uh, contact us. Um, we'll have the site um, here in just a second. Um, we'll list that out for you. We have a contact uh, button down on that for the information tab in there. Um, but yeah, if there's anything you want to hear about or maybe even, you know, maybe we'll even, you know, put your question on, on the, uh, um, on the podcast and answer it for you. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to look forward to in upcoming episodes. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I'm really glad to, if you guys endured this brutal hour of our first podcast recording, uh, we sincerely thank you. And, uh, yeah. Shall we wrap this up? Yeah. I think that concludes it. All right. Well, we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, where you can connect with a good group of hunters without all the garbage you get in some of the other waterfowl groups. We're all in this together, so let's act like it. And hopefully our great-great-grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite holes. All right, stay safe out there, and we'll see you next week. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.